All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Jordi Visser, President and CEO of Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors. Jordi, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Yeah, me as well. I'm very excited. We're going to be getting into some very interesting topics today. Not only the sort of macro fair that we typically cover on the show, but I also want to pick your brain on some of the more exponential technology growth groups, such as uh, Bitcoin and crypto, obviously. But also, I know that you're very interested in AI and kind of digging in and getting your hands dirty. So I've got a bunch of questions for you on that. Maybe we could start from a very high level here and sort of frame the conversation from the perspective of there are sort of two forces right now that are moving markets out there. There's sort of the monetary interest rates driven forces, which people were drastically underestimating, let's say, around when the Fed started to hike interest rates at the beginning of 2022. And then there's these technology groups, be it crypto or artificial intelligence that are driving markets as well. If you had to sort of tease out the impact, which do you think of those two as being in the driver's seat at the current moment? So for the past three years, we've had a unique situation where we put more money into the system, as we know, than any time we've ever seen. And at the same time, you had bottlenecks, which were extreme because we shut down the entire planet. And so the technology part, which is meant to make things more efficient, really couldn't offset these two massive forces that came into play. And now where we are is money supply is declining. Uh, and so you've got negative money supply growth at, at the, the fastest clip in history. You've moved rates up to a higher level. So you've seen inflation come down for anything goods related because we've stopped the purchases of them. Uh, but we haven't completely got all the inflation down. But what you also have is an acceleration in technology, particularly from artificial intelligence, which is probably going to be the next leg of a disinflationary environment. So I think we're in this middle ground right now of coming out of COVID, where we still have the residual impact of all the money we put in, the residual impact of all the bottlenecks, which haven't completely resolved. But over the course of the next three years, I think they will resolve and we'll be back in a scenario that technology will be the dominant force. Right now, it's just not as important as the first two. As I agree, the inflation def deflation debate is uh, is integral to what we're talking about here. How would you sort of respond to you know one of the other factors that I always think about when it comes to inflation versus deflation is sort of this unipolar versus multipolar world argument. And in addition to technology and demographics, one of the forces that impacts the inflationary dynamic is the ability for developed economies to borrow from lower cost labor pools that are primarily based out east relative to the US. And you know we're seeing quite a bit of geopolitical stress and tension. Obviously, there's the war going on in Ukraine, which is heated up this past weekend. We're recording this on, you know, uh, June 26th. And I could see, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, political rhetoric in the U.S. is sort of focused on this divide in between this great power competition between the United States and China. And we might not have the ability to borrow, you know, from that lower cost labor pool that we have for, for such a long period of time. Does that, does that impact your view on the inflation versus deflation debate at all? Yeah, I think that's the part that'll have wages still having... Um pressure to the upside. So think of labor, the labor pool as being something where theoretically, because we were outsourcing so much to China and to Asia and to Latin America, wherever you want to go, theoretically, you had a labor pool, a cheaper labor pool for probably from the early 1980s all the way up until 2020, that let's assume was 5 billion people you could hire. Uh, and now what's happened is through a bunch of different reasons, through the cost of that labor in those countries normalizing through at the same time it being more expensive to export the stuff over here, the geopolitical risks you've seen. We've now had to focus a lot of the labor parts in the U.S. But the other issue is you can't outsource service jobs, meaning uh, it's really hard to keep going out and outsourcing like people that work in a hotel or restaurants and things like that. And you've got the demographic issue you mentioned where we're we have 10,000 baby boomers retiring every single day, and that number is just going to continue going forward. And a lot of the younger people uh, are not looking to work in jobs that where there's hiring going on. So I think the upside of the wage pressure will continue. And so to your point, that'll be the part of inflation on the labor side that I don't think can go away. But the reality is artificial intelligence will fill a lot of that gap because now we're getting into the knowledge workers. And this is something that will impact for sure 
uh, the labor side and it may not work in wages coming down. It may work in hours going down. And that's the part that I think people have forgotten. That's where I'm leaning towards is that people become more efficient. They'll need to work less to probably still make the same amount that they do. And so if product, we're at the beginning of a productivity boom, which would be very different than what we were doing before, which was hiring people all around the globe. Yeah. So this is probably a good time to transition into, into AI. Can you just start with a really sort of 10,000 foot view and describe, obviously AI has peaked an enormous amount of interest for you. You were telling me before we got online here that you were spending hours of your weekend just playing around with these tools. Can you just give us a 10,000 foot view of how you see this technology impacting our, our workforce and economy? Well, the first thing for people to understand is artificial intelligence has, is, is not something new, meaning you know companies have been utilizing it for at least the last five, six years and some form of it for even longer. Uh, remember, you know, we all kind of probably became aware of it in a bigger way when Watson won Jeopardy back in 2011 and people mm-hmm. started realizing that, hey, these things can beat us in chess, they can beat us in AlphaGo and all these things were happening. So the first thing for people to ask is why now? Why? What, what happened now? And so for those people who maybe haven't played around with it, when I say I'm playing with artificial intelligence, that's really what changed now is if I wanted to play around with artificial intelligence, I had to ask one of my data scientists to build me a tool to do something that would be deep learning or machine learning or something that would help me make decisions. With the release of ChatGPT from OpenAI back in November, that really changed a lot of things. It's had a huge impact on the stock market. Uh, if people are wondering what's driving it, artificial intelligence is having a massive impact on technology stocks and the way people think about things. So I started using it in a minor way from, say, November when it came out all the way until March. But in April, I did a podcast on our podcast, In Search of Green Marbles, and Sultan um, Mehi, who uses AI regularly, was on the podcast, and we talked about it. And he had said to me off the air that uh, it's really something that he's used to reduce or make himself so much more productive. He's a professor at Duke. And the ability for him to reduce the time that he spends on writing papers, setting up the syllabus, everything was like 80 to 90%. And so I first looked into it as an efficiency thing for me, because I do do a lot of content. Um, you know, we, like I said, podcasts, writings, videos, I do a lot of different stuff for the firm and for our investors. And I just realized that I was able to do this much faster with artificial intelligence. So chat GPT really was the thing that brought something which for years had only been for people with enough resources and computing power. But now for free, you can go on chat GPT and you can have it write papers. You can have it write the news that you want to read. Uh, there's just a bunch of things you can do with it. And then as time has gone on, you realize that it's like the app store. So if you remember how your life changed once the app store came out, the iPhone comes out, that's great. But it wasn't until the app store came out that we were able to see how ideas could go to applications, which could impact our lives. Well, with ChatGPT, the individuals now can create apps every day. There's thousands of bots created every day to help you with anything that you want. And so the only way to keep up with it, because it's happening so fast, is really to be on social media, on YouTube, on Twitter, see how you can use it. And that takes a lot of time. So it's not just playing around with it. I'm actually using it for my work. We're building some bots to help with some of the functions we have at our firm. Uh, And I think over the course of the next year, every single person uh, in work will need to be using bots as part of their business to make them more efficient. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the one that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, Rollups, Count Abstraction, MEV, App Change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So 
Because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. I'd also love to pick your brain on how are investors going to choose to get exposure to this. And uh, obviously, NVIDIA is the big winner thus far. That's trading at about 35 to 40 times next year's sales, which is pretty rich valuation. So I'm sort of wondering how those economics are going to accrue to the industry and what sort of bets investors can make. So why don't we maybe start with that discussion, actually? So NVIDIA is sort of the canonical picks and shovels play, right? They're selling the the GPU processors that are going to enable AI. And that already seems, I'll just jump off by saying that seems pretty richly or very fairly valued, depending on your perspective. So how do you see the, uh, if there's an investor that's wanting to gain exposure to AI as a sector, how do you see these gains accruing? That's that's the, the, the great question. And I think the market is also looking for that now. NVIDIA is the easy answer. Microsoft is the easy answer. Uh, then you start getting into, well, I assume this will help Google the same way. This will help Amazon the same way. All the technology companies which have had a monopoly to some degree across the globe, because they have the money and the power and they've all have some form of AI, which they all we didn't hear about Bard in a big way until ChatGPT came out. And so they set off an arms race. So I think your question on both levels is good. On the first side for the economy, I'll just give you my opinion. And this goes back to all the disruptive technologies which impacted the economy from 2000, really from the time the iPhone came out in 2007 on. Uh, I, I reference a paper or a, a long report that that McKinsey, the consulting group, released back in 2013, which anyone can find on the internet, all on disruptive technologies. And that got into 3D printing and Internet of Things and software and everything that happened. And what it really did was, first of all, it was very, very deflationary or disinflationary. Second thing is it really destroyed a lot of companies. So disruptive means disruptive. So for every, you know, Amazon destroyed almost all mall companies by competing in some way that it drove prices lower. Well, artificial intelligence to me is much greater than anything that we saw from 2010 to 20. So I absolutely believe it will cause a lot of disruption and it will create disinflationary pressures for sure. I see it as a much, much more deflationary technology uh, than the ones that we went through because it's really going to enable everything to be more efficient. So you mentioned the part that I said, I consider this to be the beginning of a massive productivity boom. And the reason this one is different than the prior one is because it directly allows companies to not have it as many people or to pay people the same amount of money, keep the same amount of people and still grow their business. So before, whenever you had to grow your business, oh, we got to hire more people. That's not what's going to happen. So I don't think this is about big companies winning. I actually think the people who have suffered the most from the ability of having labor are going to benefit the most. And that means smaller companies. It also means emerging markets. And that's where my focus is shifting. So I think about not where we're going to be this year. I understand why people are focusing on NVIDIA and stuff because it's the easy place to find it. But this is going to move so fast that places like Brazil are on my, I think Brazil is going to benefit dramatically. I lived there for two years. Their shortage was about labor, not the amount of people, but qualified, educated labor. This is replacing knowledge workers because it's a really, really good brain that you can hire. So small businesses will have the ability of growing without hiring lots of people and emerging markets will be able to find labor that they otherwise couldn't do that they were losing to develop markets. So those would be the places that I think in the end, and I do think it's disinflationary or deflationary with a productivity boom. So help me understand something, Jordy, here. I, I would love to maybe get a little bit more granular on which type of labor or workers this is going to benefit, because I just heard you say there, this is, I think, why, frankly, exec management teams are so excited about this, because exactly what you just mentioned, oh my gosh, I can keep growing and I don't have to necessarily pay you know, my workers more, increase my labor base. But at the same time, AI, it's just funny, for so many years, people thought that automation was going to replace sort of the blue collar line item type jobs. And really what we got is this super brain that's actually going to replace a lot of the knowledge workers. So who is this ultimately going to be to be sort of benefit on the uh, on like an average company basis? So the, the one thing I will not pretend to ignore, this will make 
jobs more scarce in a lot of ways because robots and, and, and artificial intelligence will absolutely be replacing a lot of things. Mm. This is where I think rather than focus on how much work people will have, if places are more productive, the reason companies haven't been able to raise wages or they haven't been willing to is because labor hasn't had the ability of pushing back on things. The one thing AI can't do, and this is the, the current paper I'm working on, it can't relate to human beings' feelings at this point. So the empathy side is not there. And so that's going to take a long time. The robotics, they're going to happen, but it's going to take another decade before you start seeing robots replacing you know all jobs or replacing a lot of jobs and you're still need going to need to have human beings in there because at the end of the day what drives an economy is transactions what drives transactions is humans that are working and so you robots can't buy anything they can't go through it so this is really about a productivity boom with solutions and i think the way that you should think about it and this is the easiest way i can go so whatever your expenses are in your life um, I, don't, I don't know where you are right now, but somewhere, if that's if that's your home or, or you're paying for utilities, if utilities were free, you'd have more money in there and you could work less hours. Well, that's what I think artificial intelligence is going to enable us to do is the friction that we have in our life, the cost, all of that stuff will also be heading down at the same time that wages are going are under pressure or hours worked are under pressure. So you may have a scenario, and this is the way I always say it, there's I don't know, 100 million barrels per day consumed of oil. What AI is going to do is enable us faster to get down to where we're only consuming 70 million barrels per day. And when people push back and say, well, you can't have growth and have it go down, I said, well, you can if 30 million barrels per day right now is what we waste. Uh, and we yeah. all know we waste food, we waste oil, we waste lots of things. What AI allows you to do is to be not only more efficient, but to reduce waste, and that is a form of growth, and that does reduce prices, and that allows people, even if their wages aren't growing or their hours worked is going down, that the question is how fast will we have things being cheaper for people? And I think that's going to happen at a very, very fast pace. In fact, I'd say that would happen at a faster pace than replacing humans from working. How how fast are we talking? If you had to ballpark a timeline, well, I, I I'm just I'm going to say this plain and simple, because unless people have used it and, and done something, uh, it used to take me weeks to write one of the papers I write, which goes out to thousands of people. I've been able to knock that down to 90 minutes, completely done too. And when I say weeks, that would also involve probably six people in the process, someone to edit it, someone to check it, it to go through legal and compliance. You got to find all the grammar and punctuation marks. AI is 100%. Like it doesn't make the mistakes in auditing a paper. It doesn't make the mistakes. So when they get it, now what they say is this thing's done already. And that's the part. So I've become significantly more efficient. And now we're incorporating this throughout. So I think it's going to happen fast. And if you add in the fact that I'm not a tech person, uh, until recently, I didn't code at all. I did take Python 101 to enable me to do the beginning of codes. Uh, and then use ChatGPT to complete my codes and to create mm -hmm. codes itself. So there's not a lot of people that are using it above the age of 55. Two thirds of the people using ChatGPT are 35 or younger. And so the reason it's going to take a long time is because what are the age of the people running most of the businesses? Well, they're above the age of 55. How have they dealt with it in the past? They've handed it off to their data scientists. And that's not going to work this time. And that's why a lot of the new companies that are going to come and compete with the bigger companies, it's going to be because younger people are running those businesses and they're using artificial intelligence. So it's about incorporating and using technologies. There's always some kind of delay because people don't want to use them. They're scared of them. And so even though this could happen fast, uh, I think the efficiency size, the problem solving, how fast oil will be impacted by it and all fossil fuels, I think that's going to happen faster than people deploying them. And so the wage stuff will stay above the deflation stuff. Now, someone used this metaphor actually a little while ago, long time ago in one of the beginning, you know, the early conferences that BlockWorks used to put on. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. Have you ever, are you familiar with the Clay Christensen uh, yes. definition for disruption? Yeah. So, you know, he obviously wrote this very famous book on, on disruption and, you know, the, the sort of core insight is the reason why companies are often disrupted or why they miss disruption is not because they're naive or they don't get it, but it's actually a very rational process where 
you know, they company like large companies make a decision to focus on this very large profitable customer segment as opposed to a smaller kind of early customer segment. The maybe the best example of this or the most recent one that will resonate is sort of IBM selling large computer mainframes to big corporate clients, right? For five million bucks or something like that. So they missed the personal computer movement, not because they didn't get it or they were naive, but because why would you ever concentrate on smalling or selling such a a small um you know, per unit cost is such a small customer base. And they just, that's why they sort of missed that wave. And the analogy would be AI actually isn't disruptive in the classic sense because it accrues value to existing competitors, right? It seems like the companies that have an advantage in AI are companies that have access to a vast data troves and the resources to train these uh, algorithms on those data troves. And then they have the, they can foot the cost of compute. So it seems like the big winners of AI are going to be, I guess, ChatGPT is or the you know uh, ChatGPT is an upstart, but uh, but like Google, Microsoft, etc., as opposed to something like crypto, where actually value does accrue to sort of the outsides. So does that analogy sort of sit with you and register, or is that not accurate? There's ideas, and those ideas, like two guys sitting in a in a garage, can become companies. And that's what the traditional path was. Well, that changed in 2010 and it went from ideas to companies to ideas to applications to companies. And now what I think is happening is that process to let's say go from ideas to applications to companies. If you became big enough like Amazon did and Microsoft, well, not Microsoft, let's just use Amazon, um, as the, the prime example, but let's go through Uber, let's go through uh, Airbnb, any of the bigger places that we know, they got such a lead time on things that they were able to build a moat around their business. Um, they would buy up other companies that might compete with them. So think about all the companies that Facebook bought along the way, uh, all the ones that Microsoft bought. And if you went through and remembered that you know, these companies like Waze, like LinkedIn, like they were, they were individual companies that eventually got bought out by bigger companies and that allowed them to have a moat. You're not going to be able to have a moat anymore. So you're going to have ideas that become little localized companies. So in India, they're going to create their own companies now because it's easy to get the information. And now with artificial intelligence, you can take an idea to an application in minutes. A website to get a website. We just we did a rebranding at the firm and we hired someone to do a whole website design redesign. Well, now websites can be done in artificial intelligence in a matter of minutes. And I'm not kidding. It can be done in minutes. So you've taken this process where these used to be companies. Now they're ideas that are immediately put into use. And once they're into use, that means you can start charging for them. So are these companies necessarily these new ideas going to make lots of money? Maybe they only sell this for you know, they end up with a hundred people paying $10 a month. It's not a big company, but that money used to go to some other big company. And so the small is finally going to be able to compete with the big. And that's what I think is going to happen is the big doesn't have the advantage because they used to have the ability of having the idea, buying anyone that was competitive with it. This speeds up the innovation and the ability of shrinking from idea to application where it used to take a long time and now it takes a matter of minutes. And that's a fact. That's not like a guess on my part. And it happened. it's happening around the world. So you're going to have localization. And the way this fits into the blockchain rather than this, and I wrote a paper on this, the one negative thing about artificial intelligence is it creates a lack of authenticity or ownership. You just don't know if yeah. what you're reading is real. And that's where the blockchain ends up being a, a big a big benefit. So I think the rise in AI directly impacts the rise of the blockchain, which directly has an impact on the ability for crypto. And that, as I call it, that country, uh, I don't think of it as a technology. I think of people running to the crypto world and they're running for reasons which are just going to be accelerated by AI. Yeah. So let's talk about crypto for a second. You mentioned people are, I like that analogy of sort of crypto as this country that's competing and trying to attract capital and people are running from, you know, what's broadly sort of referred to as this fiat system or collection of countries and nationalities into this new sort of crypto world. Can you just break down that analogy of why, why do you think people are sort of wanting to move into crypto today? 
in crypto's case, 70% of the users are in Asia. And I, I don't think people fully grasp the importance of that. Um, Asia has most of the people on the planet. So that is another sign of people running to a world where they don't want to have to move to the United States, go to the best colleges here, get a job. And with AI, this is going to speed up the ability for people who maybe couldn't afford to do that. They, their parents didn't have the money. Now they can get an education completely through AI, YouTube, whatever they want. It's ubiquitous to be able to get you know, your education there. And so they can stay there. And then if they want to set up a business, they don't have to go through what it takes to set up a business. Because if you move to the US and then you got to go through the VC world, you got to go raise money, you have to do this. You've taken that whole process and you've changed it. And that's the difference between, as I say, the fiat system has $500 trillion in net worth or yeah, net worth. The crypto world is still a $1 trillion country. So you've got this other world that is dominated by people above the age of 60 that control most of that net worth. You have this other world, which is dominated by Asia and young people. And so what's going to keep attracting people there at the beginning is the younger people who don't want to work and be forced to work for these big companies. So the work from home thing is a lot more powerful than people realize. As someone who runs a business and we have 110 employees it's really hard to force people to go back to work for five days a week. And I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to incentivize the younger people to come in and to brainstorm and collaborate and be the important part of growing your business because we kind of have this startup-y type, type feel. And I think that's what attracts people, especially in the younger side to crypto, is the enthusiasm, the energy, incorporating these new technologies, not being scared of them, and the ability of as a lot of people want, not having the restrictions that these bigger organizations and whatever you want to call it, but the freedom that you get from the crypto world will continue to attract the people that are not benefiting that much from the fiat system. And there's very few people winning in the fiat system. And we know that because we know that 99% of the wealth <laughs> is in the hands of very few people. And so the crypto mm -hmm. world offers another alternative. And I think it's going to continue to attract talent and capital, as you mentioned, it's the big thesis I have. And so what you're seeing with the movements in Ethereum and Bitcoin and all these things is a representation of how much people believe in it and how much it'll continue to grow, but it will be dominated by younger people and people around the globe. So Jordy, you mentioned that that statistic about the wealth concentration in the fiat world. I mean, how much do you think, before we get into the sort of economics of crypto and your sort of specific thoughts there, how do you think that sort of the combination of the wealth concentration and maybe the lack of trust in institutions is also pushing young people into crypto. Yeah, th that's been happening for a long time. Um, Sultan, who I referenced earlier as an AI person, his his first role was at Netscape uh, when, when it first went public. So he was working mm -hmm. with Mark Andreessen at the time. And what he always said to me is, if you talk to anyone who was involved in Web 1.0, What's going on in Web 3.0 for, for crypto reminds them of what originally was supposed to be happening. They didn't envision um, having the mega cap, mega cap tech companies come out of this and kind of control everything. Uh, they viewed a world of decentralization. So I think it will always attract people who are looking for less of a centralized world. And again, centralized world means very few people are benefiting and the rest of them are not benefiting in the same way. And I think as, as you know, you jumped on to the analogy that I use all the time, when people came to America a long time ago, I think they came for freedom. They came for having the ability of, of doing well, of living a happier life. If you go back and read everything from the Declar Declaration of Independence on, a lot of the things that people go to the crypto world for are very similar. And I think that's a representation that it's hard to find that in the current fiat system the way we are. And when we talk about authenticity and, and you talk about kind of where people are running to, the, the funny analogy I give when I say to people, well, it's a $500 trillion world, and they go, how can that be? Well, the reality is there's not that much actual physical currency in the world. It's about one-tenth of that number. So that's just the asset inflation that exists in terms of marking everything up. If everyone came to sell all those assets at the same time, they would fall dramatically. That's why we have yeah. deflationary impacts. Well, the painting that is the most valuable was sold for the most, um, which happened recently. There's a documentary on this. It was sold for about $400 million. It's part of a documentary called The Lost Leonardo, which is about a painting that, quote unquote, supposedly Leonardo da Vinci 
painted. And I say supposedly because that painting was sold in New Orleans for like $10,000 a decade ago or maybe 15 years ago now. And then all of a sudden it sold for $400 million. It's, it's the perfect example of how no one can ask or saw him paint it. It's gone through so many like redos in terms of trying to go through it. And yet someone bought it for $400 million. Now, that is the reason why we need authentic we need to have things authenticated and we'll kind of go off a little bit in the geek side here, but I have a little bit of Star Trek in me too, in terms of my beliefs on this, but at some point, not too distant future with artificial intelligence, you'll be able to replicate with exactness, any painting you want, a Picasso, anything through 3d technology or through 3d printers and through nanotechnology combined with artificial intelligence. You're pretty close to being able to, you can do that with music. You can do that with voices. You can do that with anything. How are you actually going to know when you have 17 different Picassos, which the original one is, and the certificate from Sotheby's and everything else will be exactly the same? Fraudulent stuff will just rise dramatically, which is already happening. So you're going to need the blockchain to authenticate all this stuff. And that means more money needs to go into the, in, in, into this other world. So I think it's also going to drive people that need their stuff to be authenticated to move into it, too. So I'm, I'm, I believe that is the single best way to play artificial intelligence at the end of the day is to invest in crypto and in particular in Ethereum and Bitcoin. Well, my condolences to whoever sold that 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 work of art for ten thousand dollars. Probably That's still eating the wage a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. I you know I I that analogy that you just gave about people moving to America in sort of the late 1600s and the early settlers, I that actually resonates a lot with me about crypto because if you think about it, the early settlers in the United States, many of them didn't actually necessarily have a very good time, right? I mean, whole colonies were lost to famine and disease and, you know, skirmishes with some of the Native Americans and whatever else, right? It was actually, and even the ones that ended up surviving, it was a very tough lifestyle, right? You kind of had uh, to work, you had none of the modern infrastructure that you had over in Europe at the time, but the one thing that you did get was opportunity, and land and frankly the ability to express yourself there's a big religious component to it you know obviously reasoning by analogy is sort of imperfect but that's kind of similar to crypto right i think that's a lot of what resonates with young people when they join is yeah there are all these problems right there are, there's a lot of scams there's a lot of uh, frankly there's a lot of security issues right you can lose a lot of your money there's these big scams in defi but i think the thing that resonates is is very similar to what drove our our ancestors across the atlantic back in the 16 and 1700s which is the opportunity, and you're willing to forego some of that that comfort uh, and that infrastructure that they had over in Europe, same way that you would in in sort of the tradfi side of things, because there's this perception that you can leapfrog, and there's opportunity in crypto that just doesn't exist as a if you're a young person in in finance. Yeah, and you know you you hit on a couple of things there, and this is important for people to understand. So when you say opportunity, you weren't solely talking about monetary opportunity, no. and in in the capitalist world you know, the, the way people were brought up, particularly if they're brought up wealthy, is what are they going to be? Doctors, lawyers, investment bankers, whatever the case is. But everything has been about what job are you going to get? And that job will make money and that money will bring you happiness. And I think a lot of people, particularly on the younger side that maybe remember 2008, 2009 and the great financial crisis and maybe what their parents went through and it's money doesn't bring happiness and then they go through divorces and everything else. And it's just become common knowledge, but also young people have access to information that people before 2008 did not have. And so what they care a lot about is happiness. And happiness is less and less being defined by the way that I think I was brought up in this. And I'm the son of a construction worker. So it's not like I grew up with money, but I I, I watched people think that money would bring them happiness. And the reality is crypto not only pr provides the opportunity for you to benefit from, I think, being in that world early, which is always what it's about, being early to anything. But I think it also gives them the freedom and the balance of life, the ability to be an entrepreneur, to do a lot of different things, to have a community. I did a podcast recently using Taylor Swift as an example. I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but my, my daughters are. And I asked them what was so special about them. And what they said was, she has a community. She cares about her people. She's empathetic. And they went through this whole thing but then I started to read more. And what did she do when someone tried to sell her rights as an artist? Um, she fought back and she re-recorded them almost 
a mini version of the blockchain. Like she authenticated her music, which if mm. people haven't read about it or don't understand, if you own music rights and a publisher goes, I'm going to sell those songs, which she viewed as her own personal diary. And what she turned around and did is said, fine, I'm going to re-record them and I'm going to resell them. And now when you go to Spotify, you have these old versions. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. It's it's an amazing thing. And so she did a version of the blockchain. And so the reason I bring this up is she's an example of someone that I think has this community type feel where she's taken pride in her artistry and what she's done. And the crypto world is going to drive more and more there. And then the final thing on the economic side, and this is something I do believe in, I've always said to people, and I'll use the Uber example, that who gets most of the money? that you pay for an Uber. Well, it's certainly not the driver, which means it's the company, but who owns the company? By the time you get through this, you get to the Jeff Bezos thing, is your margin, is my take, or whatever it is. And that's where the crypto world has more of a distribution, where let's assume Taylor Swift issued, was a new artist, she issued her first album, she sold it to her community of a million people for a dollar a piece. And for that dollar that they gave for her album to help fund the next one and the next one, they also got royalties on all of her music. Well, then there's really no middleman and it's been extracted. And so I think we're headed in that direction. And I think that's going to be a big a big theme for the next few years for sure. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, I could see that playing out. Jordi, I'd love to get a sense of where you think we are, if you have thoughts on the current market cycle, right? So obviously there was an enormous implosion in risk assets in general over the course of the last year, but crypto has been hit especially hard. And we had some pretty high profile failures in the form of Terra Luna, which was the stable coin that imploded and raised about $60 billion worth of value. Then we had FTX and SBF, that debacle, which was uh, you know, one of the larger frauds, I think, that that I've witnessed in my lifetime and crypto prices have responded accordingly. They've been doing pretty well uh, so far this year. You know, you've got um, Bitcoin up some 60 odd percent to date, uh, Ethereum, some of the other coins doing well as well. We've just had rumors that BlackRock, uh, actually, this isn't a rumor, BlackRock has filed for a spot uh, Bitcoin ETF application and a whole bunch of other ETF issuers have followed suit. Where exactly do you think we are in the cycle? Um, you know, the market cycle for crypto? Well, first thing I want to just tell people, um, and I'll get into the the fraud stuff, but let's just make sure that when I kind of give my analysis, which I just haven't seen anywhere yet. So I'm not saying it's right, but this is the simplistic way. I'm a very keep it simple, stupid person. Mm. We need money and capital to go to this thing to go higher. When the fiat system is falling, and last year you had stocks and bonds both down 20 plus percent. It's never happened before. Yep. You also had Amazon down 50 plus percent last year. So the NASDAQ was technology stocks were hurt the most. Private investments were down significantly. If anyone thought crypto could go higher with that going on, when that fiat pool is had lost last year, let's say 20% of the 500 trillion. So it was down $100 trillion, for example. Of course, it's going to hurt crypto. So the funding of that comes from somewhere and it comes from the fiat system it's not magically made you literally have to take your money from that system and move it to the other so when that system is losing money and nothing is going higher then crypto is not going higher the second part is i mentioned amazon was down 50 plus percent last year well bitcoin was down 64 percent 63 64 percent arc which is this kathy wood etf of the high innovation companies was down 80 percent last year i think What you're left with is why did crypto get such a bad rap in this when it was just following what other technology stuff was doing? It also is a proxy for if those are going down and the dollar is going up. Well, that's another thing, because at the end of the day, the dollar is the reserve currency, the fiat system. 
If it's going up, then it's a problem for Bitcoin. And it has been each time the dollar has rallied. Now, the dollar has been weakening this year, so Bitcoin's done better. China has the largest money supply in the world. China last year was seeing their money supply decrease. It increased dramatically beginning in November for a few months. Now it's been kind of going sideways again at the same time that crypto has been going sideways. I think China is probably going to have to because of how bad their economy is and the structural debt situation they have is going to have to do something to continue to make sure their money supply grows, which means their currency actually has to be in a place where it strengthens. And that should be good for crypto. So that right off the bat, you can't separate these two worlds. And for everyone out there, they're, they're linked. And whenever these forces are going on, innovation's doing well, the dollar is weakening and China's okay, crypto should do better. In terms of the fraud side, you mentioned FTX, you went through these. I, WeWork is about to be bust for the second time, I think, in the last four years. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank went from a massive bank to gone overnight. There's no difference between the fiat system and what's happening in crypto. Crypto is just a little newer, so it scares people more. But there's an Enron. There's an everything out there. I've been through this too many times to sit there and care that this thing is unstable. It's good for it to go through this because it means it's going to bring more regulations. And believe it or not, for everyone, when you don't have any regulations, that's when you tend to have the blowups. When you have regulations, it actually helps the group. And almost everyone with inside the crypto world just wants rules. They want to know what the rules are so that things can grow. So I don't treat it as anything more than comparing it to the fiat system. And the only thing I'll agree with, and you you, you undershot, Bitcoin's up over 80% so far this year. Year over year, it's up just over 60. Um, but I follow it a lot. As long as we're sitting near 30,000 to 31,000, we're in that range. And I think it's going to continue to move higher as long as the rest of the innovation stuff is going. And that's why artificial intelligence is so important because I don't see a chance now that that doesn't hurt or help the productivity of company, which means the earnings stuff that people are really worried about, AI is going to have an impact on earnings for sure. Yeah. So let's, so you were just mentioning, and I totally agree with you. I mean, if you looked at, I think it's the Goldman Sachs index of unprofitable tech stocks. And if you compare that with crypto, it almost tracks one for one, right? Yep. But the the implication there that I think a lot of folks in crypto, especially I, I would put myself in this bucket is, you know, I actually, let me give you the pros and the pros of that is that crypto is going to trade like a risky tech sector. And I think the pros of that is crypto is a new technology, right? It probably does. It should be valued like that. And I think the pros of that is that you want crypto to have a place. You, you want the global in, uh, base of investors to understand where crypto belongs so that they know where to put it in their portfolio, right? I actually think that might be a good thing. The The other side of that coin is, you know, well, do we really just want another, you know, sector that trades like Kathy Wood's ARK? And if that, if that is the case, then maybe crypto is a little bit less interesting. So I guess the question that I'm asking to you is, do you think crypto kind of always just trades like, you know, the NASDAQ plus higher beta? No, this is not. This is an optical illusion, and I, I, I love the question because it's very easy for me to answer it. All mm. people need to do is just because things are correlated does not mean they have the same returns. So Bitcoin at the end of 2019 was 7,000 or 8,000. It's 30,000. ARK is lower than it was at the end of 2019. So it's not a good comparison. NASDAQ, nothing has performed as well. Nothing. There's not one single asset that's performed as well that I can find that is of size. And again, for everyone who doesn't want to go, Bitcoin is, you know, these Bitcoins are half a trillion dollar asset. Like it's not a small thing. Um, the crypto world is is over a trillion dollars. And so to go back to 2019, and I'm not using Ethereum. Ethereum is obviously up dramatically more than, uh, than Bitcoin. But I'm using Bitcoin because I do view it as, and I've said this, it's the S&P 500 for me of crypto. And mm -hmm. Ethereum is the NASDAQ. Well, I don't care where you go, you've returned in stocks from 2019 on, you're still doing the same number that you had done before, which is magically you're getting like 15% a year. And in crypto, you're getting a hell of a lot more. And most people are not there. I, in the paper I wrote, I actually, um, and I try to get all allocators to do this on my side, which is to have at least 1% of their assets in crypto. I think the number should be five to 10, um, with 10 being for people who are probably 
younger and away from retirement or who, who want the risk. But if you went through a portfolio and said, I'm going to put 60% of it into, into fixed income, 30% into equities and 10% into crypto or Bitcoin, and then you went back and looked at the performance and you don't have to do it on just a a 15 year basis where we know it dramatically outperformed because of the beginning, you can do it on the last one year, three year, five year, 10 year. And what you're going to see is the argument is very simple. You should have a very, very uh, reasonable portion up between one and 10% in Bitcoin. And I think that is going to continue. And that's why when you mentioned things like BlackRock, the Fidelity stuff, everything, it's it hasn't had a lot of ability for people to invest in it. And that is going to open up the door for more and more regular people. We have a mutual fund here. I talk to a lot of financial advisors. They would love to. I talk to some of the big institutions. They won't even allow, they won't do anything on it. So it's yeah. amazing. It's done as well as it has without having institutional buy-in. And I think that's happening every day and it's very powerful. Just to remind listeners what you said a little while ago, if you have an environment where you know stocks and bonds are going down and we're withdrawing liquidity, crypto is not going to do well in that environment. So when I look out at the next 12 months of crypto, what I see is, all right, the space is already down you know, an enormous percent from the highs. You know, Right now, Bitcoin's at trading right around 30,000 off of a high of about 69,000. And looking forward to the next year, we have the halving, which has traditionally been a catalyst for you know, sort of mark the bottom of, of bull cycles in the past. We also will know that about two months before the halving, we'll have the decision. You know, we don't know an exact date, but that's about the time that we'll know if BlackRock gets their spot ETF approved. And we've also seen the bulk of the the rate hiking cycle. You know, we might get two more by the end of the year, but consensus is, you know, based on the dot plot from the last FOMC, that we'll be, you know, uh, you know, cutting around that, or at least starting to talk around cutting. So that seems very bullish. But then when you look over in the equities side of things doesn't look quite as good, right? I mean, it, it kind of is, uh, we, we're only down, you know, 15% or something like that from the highs. We just haven't really seen the mean reversion. And we haven't even seen the, the credit cycle really start and unemployment is still extremely low. So can you help me knit together those two sort of disparate views of what's going on in sort of the macro? And I have kind of a, a bearish, frankly, tilt on the, the more macro side of things, but it seems very bullish in crypto. So on, on the macro side, I think, um, beginning since, I guess, 15 months ago, really since March of last year, uh, almost everyone has been bearish in, in equities in the economy. I mean, we, we talk internally, uh, almost every survey has a recession within the next, let's say, nine months, certainly a year for up to 80% of most surveys. The Bloomberg uh, probability of recession based on forecasts is still up at like 60 something. And a lot of surveys based on the way people are positioned still talk about it. So technology typically does really, really well when people are worried about a recession. And the mm -hmm. reason is because they want to invest in growth because there's not that much growth. And so the likelihood to me is that a, we're not in a recession. Uh, we still have a labor shortage, which hasn't resolved itself. You've never had a recession without job losses. Uh, a year ago, I started hearing people say that we were going to get the unemployment rate up to 6%. Well, now it's at 3.5 to 3.7. And to, to actually have a recession, the way I define it, which is a loss of uh, about 1.5% of jobs over a period of time, means you have to lose like 2.5 million jobs. Now, can that happen from AI? Yeah, over the course of time, but we're also create we're still creating jobs. We've created 300,000 jobs a month so far this year. So I don't know what people are talking about with this recession <laughs> that they think they're going to forecast. Uh, if I'm right and companies are actually going to be in a position where their earnings can be more efficient from artificial intelligence, then earnings are going to go higher and companies don't fire people with earnings going higher. And so the biggest mistake I think people have made is using regressions or just like if I asked you, what makes you negative on the economy? You're going to give me some stuff that in the past has predicted recessions, inverted yield curves, the Fed's raising rates at a fast pace. Everyone's going to come up with some reason when the reality is, and I, I, I joined um, Morgan Stanley in 1992, just after the 1990 recession. So in my career, which goes 21 years now in this industry, there's been three recessions. 
2001, 2002, during the dot-com bubble or post that, 2008, 2009, and then 2020. So what it took to have a recession in 2001-2 was 9-11. What it took to cause a recession in 2008-2009 was a decision by the United States government to let Lehman Brothers go under. That was not an event that was taken out. They let it go under. They had been bailing out everybody, handing them off, including Bear Stearns, to whoever the event for free. They wanted to see what happened. And if you go back and watch the movies, they realize in hindsight, they opened up Pandora's box because they didn't realize how interconnected the world was. Then we had a pandemic which shut down the world, which again was an event. So it's going to take something like that because that's the only regressions I have is it took events of that magnitude and that historical consequence. 9-11, Lehman Brothers being let to go under. And then this, it's not to say that we won't have something. If we had something right now with rates where they are, they'd have to cut rates. They'd have to go through this, but I just don't see that as being the case. So I think a recession is something that people are drudging up because of things they think should happen. And all of those events, meaning the recessions before those periods, they occurred before technology, before the internet, before all of the disruptive technologies we have. And then more importantly, artificial intelligence is something the world has not seen. And I'll end this little monologue on this. I gave a presentation on Friday um, or on Thursday. And I said to people the way, because they asked me, how would you equate this compared to the other technologies? And I think some of them were wanted me to compare it to, you know, I don't know, to the iPhone, to uh, Internet of Things, to whatever. And I said, no, this is like electricity or fire. That's how important artificial intelligence is. And until you spend time on it and you see what it can do, you just don't understand how this will be plugged into everything that you do. And whether it's reducing waste on energy, reducing waste on any anything you can imagine, solving problems that have been unsolved related to cancer, longevity, everything. That's all coming and it's coming faster. So I really do believe that that's the, the case that people should be not focusing as much on historical tendencies for recessions and just on the fact that I think we're going to be able to navigate this with low growth and lower inflation, at least trajectory until uh, three years from now. All right, Jordy, I think that's as good of a place to end it as as any. I, I really appreciate you. Uh, that was a great, great climax for the whole interview. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. If people want to find out more about your firm or the work that you do, or maybe read some of those those papers that you've been writing in 90 minutes with AI, what's the best way to do that? Uh, luckily, it's not hard to find me at this point, but um, our website is uh, gweiss.com, G-W-E-I-S-S.com. All of my videos, writings, I do a bunch of chart-based videos for 20 minutes. Um, In Search of Green Marbles is the podcast that we do, and I'm on there uh, at least once or twice a month, uh, sometimes all month. It just depends. But we do one a week, and it's like 20, 25 minutes, and we cover a variety of macro topics. I am on Twitter. Uh, and I am on LinkedIn, so people can find me at all those places whenever they want. Awesome. Well, Jordy, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, and I'll have to get you on here in a, a couple months, and we can check in on the AI and, and earnings thesis. Sounds great, Mike. I appreciate you you having me on, and uh, a lot of good questions. And uh, I, I do a lot of these uh, with people going in. I learn a lot by doing them. Those were uh, those were good questions, and they connected the world. So I appreciate it. I appreciate that. Thanks, Jordy. Talk Thanks. again soon.